your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, if you were here last week or you heard last week's message, I spoke on the oracle of God's love. And it comes from Malachi chapter 1. If you haven't watched that, I encourage you to go online and take a look at that. This is sort of like a continuation, if you will, from this passage. And in Malachi 1, we saw that God declares his love for his chosen people. And he demonstrates that love. He shows them how he loved them by his sovereign choice and even making them a people. That alone should make us excited because it wasn't on us to be the people of God. It was on God's gracious choice. Nothing that we've done that would merit that choice, but only on God's great love for us. He also shows and demonstrates his love by the protection and the care that he gives to his people. There were other nations that were brought to nothing and brought to ruin, but Israel was always preserved. And then he draws praise from those he loves by defeating the wicked. We see little victories in our life over sin, over temptation. We see these victories and it causes us to praise the Lord God again. And it's always a foreshadowing of the coming return of Jesus Christ who will bring an end to sin and temptation. I don't know about you, I'm really looking forward to living in a reality where there is no longer temptation. Where I will not struggle with a war in my flesh between sin and faithfulness to God, but we will live gloriously with the Lamb of God. But all of that was couched in God's love. What flowed out of Malachi and the remainder of the book of Malachi is a lot of hard-hitting things, some admonitions, some strong rebukes. And God wanted them to receive all of those things. But he wanted to remember that to filter it through the lens of his incredible love for us. And so the question then comes, what's next? What do we do with the love of God? Or a better question is, how do we live in light of the knowledge of God's love? And this is what we have now in Ephesians chapter 5. Just to give you a quick background on Ephesians or Ephesus in general, we see Paul ministering in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a very, very important city. Uh, it was a gateway to what they call Asia Minor, or we would call modern-day Turkey. It was the gateway. It was on the mouth of a very important waterway. Of course, in the ancient world especially, waterways were very, very important. There was a huge highway that ran, started really in Ephesus and ran all the way through Asia Minor. The Greeks and the Romans used to fight over the control of the city because of how strategically important it was. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Ephesus. This is the context. And what's really interesting is there's some evidence uh, to show that Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, didn't just stay with the Ephesians, but was like a circulating around some of the churches throughout Asia Minor. So all, many people really would have heard this, not just from the church at Ephesus. And here we have Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, I have a prologue here. Partly because, if you have your notes with you, I couldn't fit an R into that one. <laughs> I have reject and refuse, and, and I just couldn't make it work. And it still kind of bothers me that I couldn't make that work. But I do think that this kind of stands alone. Now, there's some evidence from the Greek language that this verse could be appended to chapter 4, make like a chapter 4, verse 33, or it could follow into what comes next. And, and I think we can use this just as a standalone a little bit here. 
says that Christians are to imitate God. Do you ever think of what that means to imitate God? He said that we are to imitate God. And that word be imitators of God. That's what we call an imperative. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a when you get around to it kind of statement. It's a right now you become or be, if you're not one now, become an imitator of God. Now, we have to be really, really careful when we see imperatives like this, especially an imperative that comes along with what we call an indicative. So I'm not going to get too technical. But an imperative is what we do. An indicative is who we are. And he talks about us being beloved children of the Lord in this, beloved children. And the imperative, the command to become an imitator, always rests on the position that we hold as a child of God. So... To misinterpret this passage, we would say, to, in order to become children of God, I must be an imitator of God. That would not be what Paul is talking about in this passage. In fact, that would be a misinterpretation, and it runs contrary to everything we know about grace through faith and salvation, where God, independent of what we have done, sought us. He opened up our hearts to receive the gospel message, not by any works, lest we would boast and he saves us. The better way to say this is that because we are beloved children, we can now imitate God. In fact, he commands us to imitate God. That word beloved children is such an interesting word if you chase down its meaning. It gives the sense of being an only child. And as an only child, you receive the full attention, love, and resources of the parent. That's the sense in this. We are commanded to be imitators of God because God acts as if we're his only child. And he pours everything of who he is, all that love that he has into us. When I was going through this, I couldn't help but think about my grandson, Benjamin. (laughs) Love that little guy. He's so cute. And he's the only grandson. So, you know, he gets it from all angles. And he comes over to the house, and everybody's over there, and we're all doting all over him and giving, us, giving him our love and little kisses on the cheek. But what I really love is when we lay him down on a blanket on the floor, and he's getting this, this to the stage of his life where he wants to start communicating. And you know he's trying. And we'll say things to him. We'll talk sweetly, and we'll say things like, oh, oh. And we're all hovering over him, which to me would be frightening. But he loves it, apparently. He's receiving all this attention and all of this love. And when we do that, you can see him try to make the the formation of his mouth to imitate us. And and he starts kicking his little legs as he's trying to get the, the air through his vocal cords on purpose. And he's imitating us. Why is he imitating us? He's watching us. He feels that love that we're pouring out into him. This is the sense that Paul is giving in this passage. That we are as if God treats us as if we're his only child. Now we know we have brothers and sisters in the Lord. Most importantly, we have Christ who is the elder brother. He is the, the only begotten from the Father. We know this. But as far as God treats us, deals with us, he pours the full weight of his love and his intention into us. And that's the motivation and the fuel for the command to become imitators of God. Make sure we interpret these things rightly. We are loved by God so much, and we receive it, and we feel it. We can then in turn imitate him 
will want to be like him. I have to think through those things a little bit. It's, uh, it's easy for us in our minds to know God, God loves us. Something to really contemplate it, ruminate on it, experience it through reading the word of God, and you, you get a sense of the love that God pours out into us. You see that played out in your daily life as he protects you, he cares for you, he, he's with you, he answers your prayers, he grows you to be more like Jesus Christ. You start thinking these things through, and you realize God acts like I'm his only. He must. How many, how many times did God give you what you actually deserved in this world with sin? Not at all. Now, he disciplines us like a, like a father disciplines his child. We know this. We know that the reason for doing that is because he, he loves us. But we never experience what we, the, the, the negative aspect, the negative attention that God could give was poured out into Jesus Christ on our behalf. He took what we deserve. He took the wrath of God, the condemnation that we were rightly ours, into himself. And as a result, now, being saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, receive love and attention from God. And it's on that basis now that Paul is saying, you, be an imitator of God. But I can see Paul as the legal mind that he is, asking the, or anticipating the question, okay, we're to imitate God. How do we do that? Well, this is important. We need to study the scriptures for that because there's a lot of aberrant theology out there. Imitating God means we command angels. Imitating God means we try to declare things into existence. Yeah, no, that's God's job. That's not our job. We're his children, right? But the scripture provides for us what it means to imitate God. And that's where we get into verse 2. And our second point, Christians reflect the pattern of Christ's selfless love. Let's look at verse 2. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So I can see Paul's train of thought here. Be an imitator of God. How? Walk in love. How? Just as Christ also loved you. How did he love us? He gave himself up for us as an offering, sacrifice. There's a train of thought that he's using here. So we're going to back up and talk about walking in love. This is the primary command of believers who are recipients of God's love are now to in turn walk in his love. So what does it mean to walk in his love? It means to live your life in love, to make it your habit to be a loving person. Can people look at us or look at you and say, oh, that's a loving person. Or do they see an angry person or a jaded person or an annoyed person? And we all slip on these things, I understand. But the pattern, the overall trajectory of our life is that to walk in the love of God. That's our pattern. See, to be an imitator of God is to walk in love. Now, this is the third walking commandment that Paul provides for us in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 4, verse 1, he tells us to walk worthy of our calling in Jesus. In verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 17, we're to walk in holiness as opposed to the unholiness that the Gentiles walk. And now here we have a new commandment in verse 2, and that's to walk in love. So how? How do we walk in love? What does that even mean? There's so many bad interpretations of the word love in this world. That's why Paul quickly explains what it means. 
And he says, by following the pattern of Christ's selfless love. He said, just as Christ also loved you. Often you see in the scripture about the love of God. Paul does like to talk about the love of Christ. You see it here in this passage. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 and verse 37, he said, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? He said that we are more than conquerors through him who have loved us. See, how, though, did Christ love us? He said he gave himself up for us. Christ giving himself up into death was the supreme example of love. In fact, he even said in Mark 10, 45, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You know, sometimes I think we like being served a little too much. I'll make a little jokes with my wife. I could get an upgrade, an unexpected upgrade at a hotel. You know, I'll make a joke. I said, well, looks like we finally achieved a station in life where, you know, we get this upgrade. It's because it's the, the heart is so inclined to want to be served and to have things. But the selfless love that Christ has is that he served others, not himself, and did not expect people to give back to him on earth. He handed himself over. It says that he gave himself up for us. If you would, turn to John chapter 10 very quickly. John chapter 10. And you might want to keep your finger or a little marker there in John, because we'll look back at John 10, or uh, John chapter um, 13 later on. But we're going to look at John chapter 10 right now. I want you to see what Jesus said. This is the Good Shepherd passage. Many of you are familiar with that. It's the Good Shepherd passage. Jesus said in verse 11, so we're starting with John 10, verse 11. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Go down to verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now look at verse 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Christ willingly laid his life down. No one forced Christ to die. It would make no sense in this passage. Jesus said, the sheep made me lay my life down. Have you ever seen a sheep? Many of us are not ranchers or farmers, but maybe you've been to a petting zoo at least. They're not forcing you to do anything. They get annoying when they do the headbutt thing on you a little bit there. They don't force you to do anything. Jesus said that he lays it down willingly on his own accord. No one forced him to do it. He had the authority to lay his life down. He has the authority to take it back up again. And for on our behalf, he laid it down willingly for us. That's the pattern of selfless love that Christ gives us. That we too, to imitate Christ, we lay our lives down for others. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about death, like Jesus did, although God has called a great many Christians over the years around the globe to lay their lives down as martyrs for, for his name. And God may call some of us to that one day. You never know. 
But for those who hasn't, the call is still there to follow that example of selfless love by willingly laying down my life for other people. Um, since you're in John, look over at John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Look at verse 34. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Go to chapter 15 and verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I loved you. Go down to verse 17. I command you that you love one another. Do you think Jesus is trying to make a point here? How many times did he say that? He's reminding us because it doesn't come naturally for human beings that are wrestling with, with sin in their lives. He's reminding us of what he did. Now we follow his example by laying our lives down for others and we do it willingly on our own initiative and our own record. Yeah, it's probably inconvenient to do that, isn't it? That means we give up free time, if we have any. We give up free time for the sake of others. We serve other people. We might lay our lives down for the lost, providing for them, comforting them, all the while giving them the gospel while they do these things. Because they're lost. They have not experienced the love of God in their lives, but we have, and we are like Christ, moved with compassion for people. Jesus looked and he saw the people that said he, they were like harassed and distressed like sheep without a shepherd, and they were. He was moved with compassion for them. On many occasions, are we moved with compassion for the lost? Are we moved, so moved by compassion that we're willing to lay our lives down for them? Sometimes people just need an arm around the shoulder. They need provision. They're struggling. And this is where churches can kind of get off the rails a little bit there, where it becomes all about social needs and social justice. And they forget that, yes, while we're, we can help and provide and care for people, that we also give them the gospel. We don't want people to be whitewashed tombs, as Jesus would call the Pharisees. Look good and clean and noble on the outside, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones. But some people, sometimes their hunger gets in the way of hearing the truth. And so we feed their belly while they feed, feed their soul with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Always out there preaching the gospel to people. Laying our lives down even though it's inconvenient. We're in a rush. We're in a store. We're at the bank. Or we're doing whatever it is that we're doing. Or is life so busy that we fail to lay our lives down for others following the pattern that Jesus left for us? That we willingly... On our own initiative, as Jesus said, lay our lives down for others. And not just the lost. What about each other? We lay our lives down for one another. In fact, the commands that Jesus gave there in John 13 were to his disciples. The disciples had to be reminded to lay their lives down for one another and to love one another. You know, it's interesting that he says this, right? The whole Christian life is about love, is it not? What's the greatest commandment? To love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is very much like the first. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Now look around. We have plenty of neighbors here, don't we? And this is what God does, right? God will give some of us some great victory throughout the week. 
provides for us. He answers prayer. He gives us a little victory over sin in our lives. And, and we just really feel this special connection through the, to God through the Word of God where the Bible's being unfolded before us as we're diving in with our disciplines. But then there's some that are here really wrestling through the week, struggling with sin and struggling with temptation and struggling with needs. And we both come together so that we can encourage one another, so we can help one another out. I'm reminded, we'll, we'll get there a little bit later, but Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 gives us a portrait of the newborn church that no one considered anything that they, were, that they had as their own. They were so moved for compassion with each other. They were constantly together, meeting needs together, laying down their lives for one another. This is the ultimate reflection that Christ gave us. And it's selfless, isn't it? There's nothing selfish about it. Selfish would say, hmm, I'm a little tired right now. I just don't think I'm in the mood. How about hospitality? Sometimes that can be hard for people. Opening up the home and a million questions go through our mind. Is the house clean? Are the kids going to be behaved? Is there plenty of food in the fridge? What do I have? I can't be hospitable because none of those things are in place right now. Well, the commands to hospitality are the commands to love others. And God doesn't put a little caveat. I want you to be hospitable people to each other, but only if the house is clean. <laughs> no, he doesn't do that at all. We're to be hospitable to each other. I don't care when, any, when people invite me over to their house. I can care less what their house looks like. You should see mine. <laughs> I don't care what, what the house looks like. I care about you. You care about me. That's why we come together. We pray for each other. We encourage one another because we're following the example that Christ set for us. It's selfless. It's inconvenient, but it shows that we are children of God, are we not? I imagine it was pretty, it would be rather inconvenient for Christ to come on the earth, wouldn't you say? The right hand of the Father, stepping out of heaven, taking on flesh, living among us. I like John chapter 1 where it said he dwelt among us. And really if we're translating word for word from the Greek, it's he pitched his tent among us in a world that's ravaged by sin. And, you know, sometimes we think that we're either less or worse off than other time periods or whatnot. But in Jesus' day, there was sickness going around. In Jesus' day, they had bad economies. In Jesus' day, they had political turmoil. In Jesus' day, you had people trying to take advantage of other people because of position or wealth or whatever it is. You had all the things, all the injustices of the world that are due to the ravages of sin happening in his day as he does in our day. And yet he inconvenienced himself. You know, Philippians, he said that uh, being, being one with God or being with God was not something he would grasp, but he would hold on to for dear life. He wouldn't give that up. But he emptied himself took the form of a man and lived among us. I say it's pretty inconvenient. And so God will at times calls us, or call us to inconvenience ourselves because it shows that we are beloved children of God. And now because of that, we reflect the pattern that Christ has given us. So back to Ephesians though, Ephesians 5, he says that we are to walk in love just as Christ also loved you gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. It's interesting that the Bible uses both offering and a sacrifice. Sometimes in our minds we put those two together. 
But I like to look at this as being that Jesus fulfilled all of the Levitical law when it comes to sacrifices. And if you've been here on a Wednesday when Pastor Scott's been preaching through Leviticus, you'll know there's a lot of, a lot of bloodletting, there's a lot of waving, a lot of pouring of drinks out on altars and stuff. There were sacrifices that required the shedding of blood. There were offerings that you gave that didn't have anything to do with, with blood. There were fellowship offerings and wave offerings and other things. There's an offering that you give to God. And Christ fulfills it all. But most importantly, he was the sacrifice on our behalf. Man, I think back in, in, in uh, Jesus' day, and, and it, the day, back when we had the Old Testament, Levitical code still in place, could you imagine every single time you became aware that you sinned, you were required to bring a sacrifice. So let me ask, don't, don't say out loud, but let me ask, how many sacrifices would you have had to bring this week? You just wander down the road one day and you're like, oh, I mistreated my neighbor, I said something bad, I shouldn't have said that, I was a little too snarky with them, and I know I kind of cut them and I hurt them. Well, time to go to the sheep pen, pick the good one, the one I was saving up for Thanksgiving, time to bring that and offer that to God. And I say, God, forgive me for breaking your law for mistreating my neighbor. Here's what I offer you on my behalf. And then the priest sacrifices that animal for the remission of sins. And the Day of Atonement, we call it Yom Kippur to this day. One day a year where, the, where as a sacrifice made for the people of God as a whole. And that was the one day that a human could walk behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies in front of the Ark of God. He had to make sacrifice for himself for his own sin. And then I'm sure with much trepidation, take the blood of that animal and go behind the curtain and offer it on the, the ark of God. This is what Jesus did for us. And it says he did it to God. It says that an offering and a sacrifice to God. That's interesting. So chase that down for just a little bit. He didn't do it for himself. And he did it for us. We know that, right? But in the end, he did it and gave it to God. That was his act of worship, was to give it to God. So for us, if we're following Christ's pattern, we're reflecting his pattern, we're laying our lives down, we're really doing it for God out of an expression of worship for who he is and for the love that he's given us. There's people that will come to you and will say, Man, you just really have given up so much of your time. And I feel bad, right? People will do that. They'll feel bad. I've taken up so much of your time. I'm, I'm real sorry. You turn around and you say, I love you because Christ loved me. And I'm in turn sharing the love that he's given me to you. And you know that it's something that God accepts. You see, Jesus said he offered it to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, back in Old Testament days, all these sacrifices... People becoming aware of sin, having to bring an animal, not just on the Day of Atonement, all this stuff going on, a lot of bloodletting. Imagine how that smelled. There's a lot of animals being sacrificed. And not the entire animal was being sacrificed either. There were parts, inward parts of that animal. I'm not trying to gross anybody out, but there were inward parts of that animal that were not to be sacrificed. So they had to be taken out every single time, washed and cleaned and burned and all the things that were going on. But see, it wasn't like it was a beautiful aroma. Does God have a nose? No, he's a spirit. He's looking at the act of it, the act of faithful obedience. And when he sees that, it comes before him and he's pleased with it. He sees that. 
when I see Benjamin smiling or moving his little lips trying to imitate the things that I'm saying to him. Boy, that pleases me because he's trying to imitate me. I think it's great. How much more does God look at us imitating him by laying our lives down in love and he's pleased by that because now we're acting like his son, Jesus Christ. And if we're going to imitate God, we must imitate the Son. That's the reason why he came, wasn't it? He came to exegete, to demonstrate God to us. I love those passages. With like, Show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. He turns around and says, haven't I been with you this whole time? And you still don't recognize me. He came to show God to the world. He's the radiance of his glory. He is the image of the invisible God. So if we're going to act and imitate God, we have to imitate Christ. And we imitate Christ by offering ourselves up for others for the sake of Jesus Christ and for what he's done for us. You know, I love that he, he, you have offering, you have sacrifice here because it reminds me of Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 9, it tells us that Jesus is the high priest. He's the great high priest. He doesn't need to make a sacrifice for his own sin. It's like in the Old Testament, the high priest had to make a sacrifice for his own sin. If he didn't do that, he'd walk behind the curtain, he, he would drop dead. The little bells around the hem of his garment, a little rope attached to his ankle, so hear a big crash of bells and then nothing. Let's just pull him out. He had to make sacrifice for his own sin. Jesus didn't have to make sacrifice for his own sin because he was sinless and he was pure. He lived holy. He was tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. He was impeccable in all of his glory and in his nature. Never sinned, and he fulfilled God's law to the T, to the letter of the law, because we couldn't. Sometimes we often forget to think through the life of Jesus Christ and what that meant for us as well. He came and he gave us the word and he straightened out the, uh, the twisting of the Old Testament that was being done by the religious leaders. But he also came because he wanted to live rightly on our behalf because we can't live rightly. We're so wrapped up in sin. There's no way we could ever earn our salvation by keeping the law. You know, Paul says this in Galatians. You want to be saved by keeping the law? Knock yourself out. But with the caveat that you have to get it right every single time without fail. Not happening. There is one who did, Jesus Christ. He came and he fulfilled it, lived it perfectly. And then when he died, that's the sacrifice part. He's the substitute on our behalf. We deserve everything Jesus received. But he took it on our behalf. He stood in our place and was sacrificed. So not only is he the offerer, the high priest, he is the offering. He fulfills all of it. And that is the pattern that we follow now. If we're going to imitate God and live a life of love. That we lay ourselves down for others. And notice it says love, right? I know we use the term tough love a lot. And we oftentimes use that as an excuse to get too sharp. Sometimes what people need is just an arm around the shoulder and say, I know this is difficult. And we know that they're struggling because they're not finding their joy in the gospel, or they're not finding their joy in Christ. We get this. And we walk them through that. We point them to Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we show them compassion. That's what Christ did for me. 
Christ didn't beat me over the head. He lovingly drew me to himself. And that's what we do around us. In fact, this is our calling, and not just in Ephesians chapter 5. Look with me to, to Romans chapter 12. Many of you probably have this memorized. Romans chapter 12. We're going to start with verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. I hear people quoting it. That's awesome. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Just stop right there. So everything that Paul is about to urge the people, he's going to urge them and plead with them. I urge you, on, I'm appealing to you on the mercies of God. What, who is the mercy of God for us? Jesus Christ. Based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's saying, I urge you, pay attention, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And say, offer up your thoughts and prayers. Now, I, it's a cliche, I get it, but sometimes I'll see on social media, I'm sending you thoughts and prayers. Well, what, is, what exactly does that mean? It reminds me of James. It says, if someone says that they're cold or hungry, we say, oh, be warm, be fed, and we do nothing for them. We don't send prayers to people. We send prayers to the Lord on behalf of people. That's just a cliche. I get it. But what Paul is talking about here is offering something physical to them. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That you're laying it down and you're doing it for God. It says they're acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Worship does not happen just on Sunday morning in this building. Worship is an everyday thing in our life. Every day, every moment, our lives are to be walking worshipers. That's the way we should be. There's no dichotomy between uh, the sacred and the secular. In Christ, it's all one. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit everywhere we go. Christ is there. We're to offer the, our bodies as a living sacrifice. He continues and says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. We have to change our way of thinking. Our way of thinking is so rooted in the flesh, so rooted in the world, we need to get this into our minds to transform us. So then when I'm faced with an inconvenience in serving others, I now move and operate the way Christ would have me move and operated because my mind is changed. It's not an inconvenience. I get to worship now. And this is how God is calling me to worship by serving others, serving the world, serving the lost, serving each other. And it's a fragrant aroma to God. So he calls us to reflect the selfless, uh, selfless love of Jesus Christ. But there's more. Our next point is that Christians must reject all appearance of false and selfish love. So here, starting in Ephesians 5 and verse 3, we go from talking about the selfless love of Christ, and now he contrasts that with something that's very selfish just in case we were confused. Verse 3, But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must no, be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, 
which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. We'll just stop there for a quick second. So do you see how he's contrasting? He's talking about the selfless love of Christ, how he willingly put his life down for us. It wasn't anything about him. It was all about serving God and worshiping God and also saving the people that God has chosen. And then he contrasts that with things that are inherently selfish. He said immorality. He uses that word immorality. And that does mean sexual immorality. It's the word we get pornea and pornography from. And it really refers to any kind of activity outside the confines of a biblical marriage between one man and one woman. Which is why later on in the chapter, starting with verse 22, Paul talks about the relationship between a man and a woman in biblical marriage. Because sexual immorality is by its nature selfish. It's a selfish love that cares more about self-gratification than it does than the other. Contrast that to Christ. Nothing was about him. He did it for us. He laid it down for the sheep. He didn't take anything that was of himself. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve. How more should we flee from the appearance of false and selfish love? He said, impurity is tied to sexual impurity of any other kind other than morality. Any other impurities. It is something that's inherently selfish. He says greed. You know what greed is? It's the accumulation and the lust for possessions to be consumed by oneself rather than shared with the body of Christ. That's greed. It's about me. It's about selfishness. No, no offense to Forbes, but he said, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. What a fatalistic way to live. That's a selfish way of living. Of course, he may not have been a recipient of God's love. I want you to look at, at Acts chapter 4. Go back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Let's look at verse, let's look at verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And the congregation, this is a fledgling newborn church, really just starting out. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And I would love that to be true of us. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, there are people who will take this passage out of its context and construe it to say we all should be living like a communist. No. These people willingly gave of their own possessions. They weren't told what they were giving of their own possessions. But it shows you their heart that they were about selfless love following that pattern of Christ, not a selfish love that says, I must accumulate for myself to consume for myself. They were so enraptured with the love of God that it spilled out on how they dealt with each other. They loved each other. They were among them, and they said, that person has a need. I think I have something that could help fill that need. It's not mine. What I own, I don't really own. It belongs to God. He's just given me stewardship of it. They sold it in order to provide for them. This is selfless love, and you see it played out here in this passage. 
So he's talking about immorality, impurity, greed. And he even says here in, in Ephesians, back in Ephesians 5, it should not be named among you. Selfish love should be so universally absent from the church that it can't even be labeled among us. Is that true of the church in the United States of America? That immorality, impurity, and greed is universally absent. Fortunately, I think you know the answer to that question. Are we operating in the love of God? Do we understand that we are God's beloved children? Are we reflecting the pattern of Christ's selfless love? Are we so consumed with selfish love that now that's being named among us? Pastor Scott's going to get there when he goes through Corinthians. But there was an individual that was caught up in a very vile immorality. And Paul said, that person should not even be among you. Cast them out. They're unrepentant. Put them out of the church because we can't have the church of Jesus Christ tarnished with a label of selfish love. It shouldn't be named. Be holy as God is holy. It's not fitting for the saints. Now, that was kind of conduct-related stuff, isn't it? Immorality, impurity, greed, conduct. Now, Paul gets into selfish love as it pertains to speech. He says filthiness. There should, in verse 4, there must be no filthiness. You can translate that word to obscenity. Obscenities are usually trying to get some kind of gratification without the actual act involved. So now we're involved in obscenities and speaking obscenities. It brings shame and it brings dishonor. I like how he says uh, in this passage, silly talk. In the first service, my son was sitting next to me. And he leans over and he said, knowing that I like to make jokes, leans over and said, is it possible for you to not have silly talk? <laughs> This is not silly talk like making a joke and being humorous. This is a silly kind of pointless, useless talk that takes attention away from Christ and the gospel and puts it squarely on your shoulders. You ever met somebody, you're in a conversation with them, and it's just always about them, and they're always saying stuff, and they're saying a lot of things without saying anything in particular. Have you ever met that person? They say a lot, but they're not really saying anything. And it's just this sense here that it's just all about them, that they're putting that attention on them. You can't get it word edgewise about Christ or the gospel there. Paul is saying, that's selfish. That's trying to draw all attention to me and not on Jesus Christ. That can't be with us. He says, coarse jesting. Another way of translating that is sarcastic ridicule. Now, I have to be really careful with this because I am one that thinks that you can turn sarcasm into an art form. <laughs> you got to be careful with it, though. Sarcastic ridicule is getting a laugh at the expense of someone else. That's really what it's about. And isn't that selfish love? I'm trying to get a laugh out of this. And to do that, I must bring that person down. That's the opposite of what Christ came and did. He laid his life down for us. He came to serve other people. And here, we're taking from someone else in order to get a laugh and put the attention on us. And he kind of says here again, which are not fitting. It's not fitting for a saint of God. Now, to, I know that many of us have grown up maybe in a Catholic tradition or whatever, where they have a hierarchy, and saints are up there in a hierarchy, and you can pray to them, and there's little icons to them. I, my great-grandmother, she, she was Catholic from the moment she was born to the moment she died, but she used to pray to St. Christopher every time she got into the car. <clears throat> but that's not the biblical definition of a saint. 
The biblical definition of a saint is someone who has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and is being sanctified to be more like him. If that is you, you are a saint. And it's not fitting for someone who has been redeemed by God, brought from darkness into the marvelous light, in order to live like we're still in darkness. That's why I say it's not fitting to even have these labels attached to us. If we're immoral, what does that show about the love of God in us? If the pattern of our life is coarse jesting and and sarcastic ridicule, what does that say about us giving our lives over for others in love? He says, instead of this, but rather give thanks. Maybe we need to stop talking and just start praising. Stop talking and start thanking God. You know, we say this a lot. I know you hear this a lot, but it's so important. We must preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. That will turn into thanks and praise every single time. Maybe we need to put a little reminder on our phone occasionally throughout the day. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. You know, Pastor Scott says this. He says the first thing we should do as soon as we pop up our eyes is thank the Lord for the gospel. And that's important. I'm still trying to wake up. You know, my mind isn't always there. But once I'm awake and I can think clearly... That should be what I do. Because when I preach the gospel to myself, I'm remembering that I am a child that's loved by God with everything. Christ laid everything down for me. And now I can, in turn, pass that love on to others. It sets the tone for my whole day. I now walk differently. I can walk in love now. My conduct, my speech will be in keeping with the the pattern that Christ left for me. And it's not perfect, right? Because we go about the day and we struggle with, with sin that's in our lives and, and temptation or whatnot. That's why we need a little reminder. Our phones beep. Preach the gospel to yourself. And you stop and you preach the gospel again to yourself. And it reminds you about Christ again and it turns back to praise. So often, if we would just, sometimes we, we wrestle with temptation in the wrong way. I can't think that, I can't think that, I can't think that, I can't think that. What are you going to do? You're going to think it. Instead of just saying, I can't think that, I can't think that, preach the gospel. Start talking about Christ. Speak it out loud with your voice. We're going to look at that here in just a minute, but speak it out loud. Stops the train of thought. You're talking about Christ now, and you turn back to thanks and to praise. Now, verse 5, he gives us a warning here. He says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, there's the proper way of interpreting this, and then there's the improper way. The, the way you misinterpret this is, okay, I caught myself in some sarcastic jesting. I am no longer having inheritance of the kingdom of God. I'm out. That's not what Paul is saying. What he's showing now is the reason why these things shouldn't be named among us. Because those who are have no inheritance. The pattern of their lives, who they are, the way they live, their habits, it's, it's based upon selfish love, shows that they have not been captured by the selfless love of Jesus Christ. We can't play with these things, dallying with sin, because those who live like that have no inheritance, and there is no communion between light and darkness. There must, must be a difference between those who are captured by the selfless love of Christ and those who live in selfish love. And he calls them idolaters. It's interesting, he brings that word up, idolatry. Well, what is idolatry? It's worshiping something other than God. 
And that's what happens in our hearts. We're captured by selfish love. We're replacing the rightful worship of God in our hearts with an idol. And that idol demands worship. Always does. Always will. And we will feed its desire for worship. Whether it's immorality or greed or just bad speech, obscenities. That idol that we've erected in our heart will demand our obedience. That's what idols do. We need to smash that idol and replace it with the proper worship of God. You do that by worshiping God, by preaching the gospel to yourself. We've got we to move forward. So Christians, in order to imitate God, we must reflect the pattern of Christ's selfless love. We must reject false, selfish love. But we also need to refuse the call to false, selfish love. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let let no one deceive you. You know, selfish love for a Christian, the lure to it, the temptation to it, it's very subtle. Because if Satan just showed up to you one day and he handed you a big pile of sin and he said, here, take this, you wouldn't do it. You'd be like, get behind me, Satan, you wouldn't do it. But it's seductive. It's subtle. It breaks your barriers down little by little the more you accept it in your life. And Christians should not be deceived with things that are empty. And things that are empty are always focused on selfish, selfish things, not selfless love. And our culture throws these deceptive things to us every single day. You know, I was watching some television, and I'm just struck lately. And I'll just use this as an example of how commercials, especially, are making homosexuality seem like it's just absolutely normal. Just have a commercial and you have a homosexual couple just doing their thing, doing whatever couples do. And they're trying to make it normal. And at first, we see that and we're like, that's wrong, that's sinful. The more we see it and the less we stop and think about the word of God, the more we don't care about it anymore. And it's subtly and slowly creeps into our life, and we're being influenced by our culture. You see, a culture-influenced Christian produces a culture-influenced church. We cannot have a culture-influenced church. We're there to confront the culture. We're there to preach the gospel to the culture. We're there to preach them that there is another way, that Jesus came and died for them. We must tell them the bad news before the good news, right? You can't know the good news is good unless you contrast it with something. You know, the good news is so great because of the bad news. And the bad news is that the world is in the state that it's in because of sin. And that apart from the saving, redemptive work of Christ, people are headed to hell. It's not like they're banging down the door of heaven, let me in, let me in. They're marching straight on into the gates of hell. See, the sons of Satan will act like Satan himself. And it's slow and it's subtle, but what do we do about it? I'm reminded of Eve in Genesis chapter 3. You know what a serpent did? A serpent is described in, in Genesis as being crafty, right? being slick. You know what the serpent did? Just asked a bunch of questions. Did God say... Poking at the faithfulness of God. Little by little. Right then, that should have been the end of the discussion. Right at that question, Adam and Eve should have jumped in there and just said, God, look at this. Let's take care of this. But instead, they received it. Did God say, well, yeah, God said that, and I'm going to throw the add on that we shouldn't even touch it. 
well, are you sure you're going to die? Because the reason why God doesn't want you to have that is because he doesn't want you to be like him. And as you eat it, you'll be like him. Seductive, trying to take their attention away from the goodness of God and onto themselves and what they can get, what they can receive. It was selfish. You see, following, living the Christian life, following the pattern of Christ's selfless love is as easy as Peter walking on the water. Did you ever think about that? Jesus was walking on the water. Peter saw him from the boat and said, can I come out to you? And he's like, sure, come on. Jumped right out of the boat and started walking. And it wasn't until he took his eyes off of Christ that he fell into the water. Praise God, the love of Christ being what he is, pulled him out of the water. We need to keep our eyes focused on Christ. We don't really have a lot of time to get to there today, but I just wanted to read from 1 Corinthians. In fact, why don't you turn there? Uh, 2 Corinthians, excuse me. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I have a few minutes. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to look at verse 3 through 5. This is how we confront empty, deceptive words, arguments. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, let's look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Of course, sometimes when we war, we war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what we do. We're taking all of these arguments, all of these thoughts towards selfish love. We're captivating them and holding them to the obedience of Christ. How does this measure up? to Christ and his word. Is it right? Is it wrong? If it's right, go for it. If it's wrong and it's contrary to the word, you put it down right then and right there. That's how you defeat empty, deceptive arguments and tempting thoughts in our minds. When we're tempted to agree with selfishness, when we're tempted to walk in selfishness, take, take it captive. But in order to take it captive, though, the assumption is that we know what's in here. We can't take anything captive to the obedience of Christ if we don't know what Christ has said about it. We have to study the word to show ourselves approved. We go through it and we read it and we search it. And if, even if we don't know where to find it, we dig through it. We're involved in Bible studies and sermons week after week. And we're with other believers and we ask them, hey, I've had this, this thought or I heard this argument. Do you know where the Bible speaks to that? And we encourage each other with the word of God. That's how we take it captive. You see, we are children, by, in Christ, we are children that are most loved by God. And he treats us like we're the only ones. And it's that love that motivates to imitate him. Not out of duty, but just out of love for what he's done for us. And we imitate him by reflecting the pattern of Christ's selfless love that he has for us. We reject selfish love because that's all around us. That's a war, and it's a war in our minds. It's all around us. We are brought into it. We are brought up in it in this world, and now we're saved, and we're in the world, but we're not of it. We have to reject it when we see it, and then when we hear arguments, empty, hollow arguments that push us toward away from Christ's selfless love and into selfish love, we got to put it down. We refuse to hear it. I don't listen to it. I'm taking an obedience 
to the Word of God, to Jesus Christ. This is how we live with the love of God. See, Malachi 1 was all about the oracle of God's love. And he reminded them all about his love. And now we're reminded. We know that God loves us. We know that he loves us like we're his only. What do we do with it? Live like Christ. Lay your life down to serve him and to serve others. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would so capture us with your love through the word of God, through the victories of sin and temptation in our life. I pray that we would be so captured by your love and so cognizant of that reality that we want to imitate you. And to imitate you is to imitate your son, Jesus. Help us to walk as Christ walked in love. Help us to give ourselves over to others in service like he did. Help us to put ourself aside and put aside selfishness. Convict us, Lord, if we've been, our conduct has been selfish, if our speech has been selfish, if we haven't been serving others, just serving ourselves. Convict us so we can make a quick confession before you, trusting in the merits of Christ for our forgiveness. I pray that you would be with these people as they go about their week. I pray that you keep them safe. That you make their paths straight for them. Make your wisdom and your, and your knowledge and your will for them plain, Lord. I pray that you would teach them from your word. That you, as they read the scriptures, that they would just, the words would just jump off the page. That you would transform their hearts and their minds. Their minds would be renewed. They may walk in obedience to you. And we all do this only because of what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.